in a way, I think that they they were kind of might be described as difficult men in certain situations, and and they were kind to me and patient with me, and they couldn't really fish with their members of their family very well. That happens sometimes, where people are so obsessed that maybe they their their son rejects it or something, or that's just too intense. And I think that I was, I wouldn't say I was their surrogate kind of grandchild, but I think the fact that I wasn't in their family kind of made it easier. That was David Coggins talking about his two biggest fly fishing mentors, fly fishing with style, today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey there, how is it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Please, uh, if you get a chance, head over to uh, Instagram and follow Wet Fly Swing. This is a good chance to uh, keep in touch, stay engaged, and ask any questions you have. You can send me a DM anytime uh, while there. And, uh, and it would be great uh, if you could also leave a comment if you get a chance. Uh, check out the post from today, uh, whatever the most recent one, and leave a quick comment. Say, hey, uh, thanks for that. David Coggins is here to share his book on the fly fishing life and his journey to help more people find their passion. David goes into this book and other writings, plus uh, the travel space and men's fashion industry, two areas he has written extensively. Plus, he clarifies what's not in style on the flats. I get strike two, uh, by the way, on my fashion sense in this one, so uh, get excited for that. Before we get started, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. In today's world of mass-produced products, Stonefly Nets has reclaimed the tradition of handcrafted care with their custom wood landing nets. Stonefly's goal is to create a unique custom classic wood net that are second to none in quality and can be customized for that little extra touch. Please head over to wetflyswing.com stonefly to get your custom net today. That's wetflyswing.com stonefly to get started right now. So, without further ado, here is David Coggins from thecontender.co. How's it going, David? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for putting this together. We, um, you know, the journey of me getting guests, I, I like to talk about this because it kind of gives us the path <laughs> to get here. And, you know, yours, I think, came originally from uh, one of our listeners. You know, I loved uh, when people come out and say, hey, oh, this, this guy's awesome. You need to get him because that's just is powerful. <laughs> so I can't remember exactly who I'll have to look that up. But yeah, that's where that started on the journey. But you have a book out that's uh, fly fishing in the fly fishing space, but you've written a lot about a lot of different things. I, I'd like to just hear how you, you know, take us back to the fly fishing part, how you first got into fly fishing. Sure. Well, um, I'm coming at you from Wisconsin um, at our family's cabin, and I, I spent every summer of my life here, and there were two, two old-timers on this lake who were really kind of legendary sportsmen. And uh, I was intimidated by these guys who were friends of my grandfather. My grandfather, I would say, you've you got to go out with these guys. Actually, one of them's name is Dave. And the other, in fact, his name is Dave Stewart, too, if we <laughs> want to get really, really coincidental here. So I thought that was a good sign. And uh, the other's name was Carter. And I was, I don't know, I was, I was intimidated to go out with them. They were, I was a young, you know, I was a teenager. They were friends of my grandfather. It wasn't really my ideal partner at that time. And then as I got older, I kind of got my act together, started going fishing with them. And these are really serious anglers. Who, and we would go fly fishing for smallmouth bass in the rivers here, which not a lot of people do. And it was a real education to be with them. So I, I got in and I would, was on these, living on these coasts at that point and kind of trying to teach myself how to fly fish in, uh, in the Housatonic River in Litchfield County, Connecticut. And that is a whole comical <laughs> story of another time. Um, and, but between, between those two things, I, I just absolutely became obsessed with the sport. There you go. So you pretty much, so early on, you, you fly fishing, this was when you were a, a child? Yeah, well, I you know, grow, having a house on a on a lake or a cabin on a lake, it just fishing was a very natural thing. So I would fish conventionally, just row out my on my own and fish in the bay for uh, actually largemouth bass or northern pike, and it and that was just I mean, what kid wouldn't want to do that? Really, at least that's how it seemed to me. And then as I got older, I got you know the the solitude, the contemplativeness, the patience involved all, all suited my personality and sensibility. And then and then. I got a little more interested in fly fishing. And then all of a sudden, as I got older, it, it kind of, I don't want to say it took over my life, but it became a large part of my life. 
Yeah, there you go. And, and the book, I, I, you know, I love just kind of some of the, the subtitles, but you know, the fly fishing life, I guess it's your, uh, you know, your pitch on the optimists uh, for, for the general. And it's interesting because I was doing a little bit of research getting ready for this. And I heard you on a podcast with, I think it was the art of, um, manliness. Um, mm. and, uh, and I started listening. I was like, wow. Okay. And he was obviously, I don't think a fly fisherman. Um, and he mm-hmm. was asking some really general, really basic questions, right. Getting going. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of eventually just turned it off because it wasn't my, you know, you know, I've been fishing a long time, so it wasn't that interesting because it was really basic questions. But I mean, what is your, you know, for this book, who is your target audience for this book? Well, I should say about, I don't know, two or three years ago, I started writing about fishing even longer than that. And it was, it was hard to do that because there's so much writing about it by people who are true experts giving legitimately technical advice, which I'm completely not doing. I'm not, you know, telling you how to Euro nymph or, 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 or inventing any sort of flies or anything like that. But I do, I've always, I've loved this. When I wrote for magazines, it was often for a general audience. And I, I do think there's something about fishing that's more than just, the act of casting and trying to catch a fish. To me, it's the anticipation, looking forward to a day on the water, the complete experience. And if you travel, all the traditions of the places that you, where you are. And so as I started writing for a, a, a wider audience, I enjoyed kind of making the case for what's wonderful about what being in the Bahamas and, and drinking kind of bad Bahamian beer and the way the guides are and everything about waking up there. And, and that that was fishing to me, this whole looking forward to the trip, the day itself, and then remembering it afterward. And so when I decided to write the book, which also involved a certain amount of admitting that I'm going to try to do this, I think it was in one sense for people who might be interested in fishing, of course. And I think there's some barriers to entry, which is famously the cast. And I, I kind of am, I'm over the cast. I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I still, I was out practicing yesterday. I'm still out like obsessed with it. I'm learning to spay cast and do some other things. The cast is sort of everything, but also I think it keeps people out of the sport. And I, and so it was for those people and also people who've done it a little bit, but maybe they're caught up in, I don't know, results-based fishing. <laughs> and to me, you know, we, we've all made mistakes. You, you can't fish without at least embracing failure in some way. And so I think it was, the book is about people, for people who might like to fish or people who have fish a lot, but maybe haven't articulated some of their feelings about it and just want a kind of a, a partner in a way. And I think when I talk to people who've read the book, who've fished, they say, oh, right, I've, I, I had that feeling, or I know what you mean, or I made that same mistake, or I felt that same triumph. Or, and I, and that's, that's a nice feeling for me. There you go. Yeah. So it's not only just a uh, general uh, public, I guess, but also people that, yeah, that maybe some hardcore people that have been fishing, you know, uh, that maybe just want to connect, right? Connecting sure. with somebody else. Well, I should say the way the book is set up, it's, it's um, every chapter is a different place and a different fish and then a sort of different virtue that's required for that fish. So it moves around, it's worldwide. So if you, it goes to Patagonia and the chalk streams of England and the flats of the Bahamas and Northern Maine. So even Jamaica Bay and New York. So it's, it's got a feeling and it kind of tracks my obsession and my learning curve. And so in each place trying to, you know, catch an Atlantic salmon in New Brunswick and, um, and that, and so I do think it, you know, it starts as an innocent, uh, interest or hobby even, and then it becomes a passion and then it's kind of dictating your calendar and you're plotting out trips a year in advance. So it, it does, it does move into the more obsessive quality that I think people who fish a lot who are like already trying to track down what they're doing. <laughs> December 2022, if the world is still together, they're going to try to be and you know, book that flight to Buenos Aires. Yeah. And I, and I I don't know the exact numbers of people that are listening on this, but I think most are, are in that field, right? They're, sure. They're planning and they're, you know, this is their thing and they plan their, you know, a lot of, a lot of us plan our lives around, you know, that next trip, which is, sure. which is amazing. So, um, I did want to dig into, you know, the places because that was a, mm-hmm. a topic I wanted to hit on. Just talk about some of those, you know, the ones that stick out to you. I'm sure they all do, but I, you mentioned the cast. I just want to note, um, we do have a lot of episodes here with, uh, you know, I've had Rosenbauer on and a lot mm-hmm. of the technical stuff. And we did have uh, Ed Javorowski on to talk about casting. He came up <laughs> with this, uh, and it was, it was pretty, you know, the technical stuff, sometimes it does get a little boring, but when you have some of these people on that are, when they nail it and they kind of make it easier for all of us, um, I love to highlight those, but, uh, but no, oh, yeah. so this t- today will be, you know, for you just a little bit, uh, we're not going to get into technical right today. You're not a, uh, you're not an expert nymph fisherman. 
I, well, you know, it's funny. I'm every year I try to like make myself do a new thing, and I'm I love to learn. And every time I go out with guides or you know Tom Rosenbauer, who I've been lucky to fish with a few times, I you know I'm always trying to to get um, <laughs> to learn things and to observe things and to sneak hacks out of there. And I always joke with Tom that I'm going to write in David from New York, ask him questions <laughs> in the for the fly box part of his podcast. Yeah. But um, you know, and every year I try to kind of force myself to do something I, I don't normally do, whether it's just like, okay, let's just fish with midges. <laughs> and I, I do it with a friend who are, because I, I typically lock into a few things that I like to do. Then I was like really into deep nymphing and I'm, I'm, I am starting to get close to some Euro nymph desire, <laughs> which, uh, and, and I love that part of the, the sport too. I love um, this sort of line between kind of tactical you know, where you really stick with what you believe in. And I have a friend who's like, all you need is a parachute atoms. It's all you need. Different sizes, parachute atoms. I'm like, okay, I, I like that. But then also if someone is like, no, we're going to work through our progressions until we get what works. And that, per and so when I'm writing in the first chapter of the book, the Dave Stewart character, he sticks with the same way of fishing all year after year, day after day. While Carter, my other sort of mentor, he has all this progression and, and they fished together and they kind of had a little friction, some friendly, friendly disagreements. And, you know, Dave would say, Carter's always fiddling around in his tackle box as if fiddling around was kind of the worst thing that you could do. And, and Carter would say, you know, Dave doesn't change and he'll never change. And, uh, and that was, I like those two philosophies and I like, you know, how we, we see ourselves in both of those sometimes. Yeah. And that's helped. I mean, that that's basically, it sounds like these two people have been the foundation. They've kind of guided you. I mean, do you constantly, when you're out there fishing, I guess for this book, when you're writing this book, are, are those guys always popping up in your mind? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when you, I mean, I think fly fishing is something that it is something that's learned. So you, most people have a person or people that taught them when they were young, you know, it's often a relative, but it could be a neighbor or something or a friend. And I, I love that about it. And I love I love, you know, you don't always love it when it's happening because you're struggling to get your cast out there. But once it happens, you you feel, I think as I got older, um, and I should say that, you know, Carter and Dave are, are no longer with us. They're at the, the fly fishing stream in the sky. Um, but I think about those guys and the knowledge they gave me and how lucky I was. And when I'm, now that I'm older and I'm, you know, helping other people learn, sometimes I, which I never kind of imagined that I would do, I, I, I feel I don't know, lucky in a way to, to pass some of that knowledge along and that that's how these things happen and that you try to bring some some people you care about into the sport and that that can be a really good feeling. And and these phrases coming out of my mouth that I never thought would happen and it's like, keep the rod tip high or whatever, you know, like things you've heard guides say. It's just all of a sudden I'm, I you know, you internalize it, of course, and it's coming out of you when you're talking to someone and you're like, you know, look alive out there, watch that. Is this some good water? <laughs> that's right. That's right. No, I, that actually resonates with me pretty deeply because, um, you know, my, for my story, my dad was the person mm. that, uh, you know, got me into it early. He was a, a guide and stuff like that. And, and now it's really crazy because now he's old, older, you know, and he's actually dementia. We're starting to think that's starting up and you mm. know, he's, he's done these trips every year with me and now I'm the one taking him down in the drift yep. boat. And, and now we're, I'm literally getting this point like, wow, I don't know. You know what I mean? I'm starting to think like, gosh, can I still take him on the river? And yeah kind of this crazy thing to think about that, but not, I mean, that's the reality. But I, like you said, I mean, you know, my dad will always be with me, right? I mean, even mm. when he's gone, mm. that's the power of, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if that's part of, you know, your book or, or well, whatever, but it's, for me, it seems like fly fishing is that. Well, you know, one thing that's interesting and, you know, without getting too, too into the heavy stuff here, that I do think that we can see our relationships with certain people through fishing. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I mean, it can be through any passion you have, but in our case, it's fishing, right? And so you you have, you remember a certain time of your life and a place, a river that you were on and the person you were with and maybe a triumph you had or a, a disaster that you had. And so we can we can look back and, oh, it was the first time you caught a, you know, whatever it was, a bonefish on your own without a guide. And that, that meant something to you and you remember the person you were with or you were with someone when they caught their first trout ever. And that has a meaning. And I think we can look back at the sport, um, the times you were with your father, and uh, and kind of see the passage of time, and and also the fact that you shared something important with someone that you cared about, and you know that's that's a pretty good thing. Is that? I mean, this kind of sounds like the pitch for you know the fly fishing life or whatever. Is that is that <laughs> but, kind of what? I mean, the essence. I mean, what, what well, the book. I, I guess I was thinking about how we how we admit that we care about 
an activity or a passion. And I think if without getting carried away, which is what I always say before I get carried <laughs> away, is that often Amer Americans, <laughs> you know, they work really hard and uh, they don't, it's not easy to let an activity take space in your life, especially if it keeps you from, you know, working or something. So at a certain point, I was fishing more and more and traveling more to do it. And it, and it was, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was complicating my personal life, but it was definitely, you know, your, your friends who don't fish are like, wait, you're going to Patagonia uh, alone? What's <laughs> going on here? And then, and the first time you do it, they, they're kind of surprised. The second time they're used to it. And third time they're like, oh, that's your thing. You go, you go to these places, you know, in my case, often alone, sometimes with fishing friends. And I think I was trying to make a case for, for letting something into your life that matters to you. So in our case, right, fishing, obviously, but that, that making that space is meaningful. And I think over, if anything, over the last, you know, year and a half, it's such a complicated time is that it's been a time for people to reassess, uh, the things they care about. Of course, the people they care about, but, but the way they're spending their time and are they, have they been working too much and not, you know, whatever it is, sailing or learning butchery or whatever skill it is. And so I think I'm kind of making the case for, yes, fly fishing is a great thing to do and to be outside and to be in the natural world and a beautiful place and all the skills and concentration and the way you feel connected to a living thing when you have a fish on the line. But also that we should, it's worth having something in your life like that, that you care about, that is a priority beyond a stupid job or beyond even, and that something that takes you out of, of, the social media hum that gives you solitude. And so I, I'm, I'm advocating the, the fly, having something like fly fishing in anyone's life. But in our case, let, you know, let's talk fish and let's get that bonefish on the line. Yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. I mean, that's, that's the pitch. I think, like you said, there's, you got to have something otherwise. Yeah. How do you release And the nature thing? I think, right. Is that's the other powerful thing is people don't probably don't understand or appreciate if they've never gotten out into the woods or, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Had that connection with nature, the, the power there. So, yeah, um, I guess that's what, that's what I was saying. I'm sorry about the cast being a little bit of a, I mean, obviously the cast is something we're always working on and trying to get better at, but I think pe for people who don't fish, the cast keeps them away from it. And they're so much, they're so caught in that that they can't really enjoy themselves right away or that they think until they master that they're not really fishing. And so if I get someone on the water, I'm like, we're outside today. We're having a good time. And, and we're, I'm already happy. It's nine o'clock. We're on the river. Let's not worry about, you know, if you're, you know, unfurling the perfect loop and, you know, tossing in that mend <laughs> above a, a sipping 18 inch Brown, let's just, you know, we're together. We're in a beautiful place. Let's enjoy the day and we'll try to, you know, catch a fish. Yeah. Or, or a, uh, or a, uh, 250 pound arapaima, you know, right. <laughs> so, I, 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 you know, on the book, I'm curious to hear some of the different species because, uh, we just had a guest recently, Javier, who was talking about Ecuador and, uh, yeah. And he was describing this, right. The arapaima, this crazy fish <laughs> that breathes air. And he was talking about, just like you said, you, you gotta ta you gotta toss it to the sipping fish. I mean, he's literally taking a breath of air. That's and wild. so, yeah, it's wild, right? I mean, but that's the amazing thing about fishing. I think that's what's exciting for me is that we've got all these places around the world we can now travel that, you know, I don't think anybody thought about, right, back, back in the day. Oh, completely. Uh, yeah, what, what was your, so when you look at the book, if you think of um, some of the the most dramatic spots, if you had to point somebody to one of those, what comes to mind when you think about well, that? Well, you know, people ask me this a lot, and I, I, I was really surprised by my incredible affection for the Bahamas and the flats. And... Um, you know, I live in New York, which is a very vertical city, and the flats are about as horizontal as it gets. But I, I was not ready for the solitude, you know, like in Andros or Long Island, um, in the outer islands of the Bahamas, and how wonderful that was to be there. And it's, you know, you're standing in two feet of water, give or take, and it's just sand and, and tidal water and, and sky. And it's, it's, it's really gorgeous. You feel like you're alone, really on earth. I've never felt that type of solitude. And and I really recommend it. Um, I know there's, you know, that's another thing people like, well, do I really want to go down there, do it for the first time? You do. <laughs> you absolutely do. And I love, you know, stalking bonefish. And that, that to me, the first time I did it and um, was really kind of changed my feeling about a lot of things. I, I was more of a, you know, serious trout angler and, and still, you know, love that as much as anything. But my, my um, few days in the Bahamas every year have been really cherished for me. And I, I think that's a really, it's a nice way to fish. Um, I like, you know, stalking with a guide and, you know, working on your vision is, is really nice. And, um, 
I think that's that's something that I hope more people try. Um, and uh, it's a really really wonderful sport. Yeah, I think I think they will. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that. Uh, I mean, you kind of evolve, right? I mean, do you find yourself now thinking more about you know less about your next big trout trip and more about your next uh, saltwater trip? Well, you know, it's funny. I think you know one thing I talk about in the book. So each chapter is kind of learning a different fish, and you you there's a different learning curve for each fish. So you think by no means do you master trout fishing, but you're you know you're comfortable with the terms of engagement, so to speak. And then you go to the Bahamas to try to catch a bonefish, and you you know you can't see them, <laughs> and it's completely di- and then you're trying to you're supposed to make of course a strip set and you make a trout set you lose the, fi- the first fish which you promise yourself you weren't going to do and you it's a whole another it's a whole other learning curve and then you go salmon fishing and then that's a whole other, and so i love this fact you're talking about a guest and gulping air it's, it's like do you want to set yourself up to like all oh, right am i going to dedicate the next 10 years of my life to try to catch a permit which right. <laughs> you know, is impossible or whatever and and yet of course you do in most cases because your friend talks you into it the next thing you know you're down there and then you're like well we're really catching bonefish but oh we have one shot at a permit you miss it but or you get it and lose it and the next thing you know it's all you can think about and you're like doing research and you're buying permit books and i love this you know it's some it's totally irrational but i completely get it and i think one thing i like when i talk to people who fish a lot is there's some yeah they they have this childlike love of of um doing things that they know probably know better than are going to work i mean i'm i'm planning for my first steelhead trip i going heading out your way a little north of where you are oh into canada actually but and i'm and i'm like do i really want to now get obsessed with steelhead and and i'm with some friends who do it a lot so i'm trying to you know catch up just to get my two-handed cast down and i know that as soon as i make a mistake and lose a fish then that's almost all it takes for me to then be complete like when are we going back (laughs) you know yeah and and so i love this um i i love and I think it happens to a lot of people when they fish more, if they're lucky enough to travel to, you know, to try new, new species and new, you know, in, in new water systems and new and, and get fall in love with British Columbia or the Bahamas or something. And I think that's, you know, one of the great things to, about this sport. Yeah. And, and that's the struggle is that, like you said, or, you know, just the time, right? I mean, what do you, you start to look and think, oh, okay, how much time do you have left and where <laughs> right, can you go? That's right. the scary thing is that you're like, oh man, I mean, I do want to do every single one of those trips, but there's no way you can do it. <laughs> right, right. And you're jumping into steelhead, which is, which is crazy because, you know, right now the runs are down a little bit, yeah. at least, you know, depending where you go, but there's still fish, you know, out there and, you know, it only takes one. I mean, that's right. the bottom line. We, we, right. we took a, I took a buddy up there a, a number of years ago, didn't really know much about fishing at all. We put him on a steelhead run. <laughs> And he caught his first steelhead, right? I mean, he could barely cast, and, and it was just this epic thing. And that's what yeah. BC is about, you know. That's why BC. That's why I think everybody should go there and just do that mm-hmm. at least once. Yeah, I think sometimes you. I mean, you you just changed his life there. And but of course, like the joke is, you know, you get ready for this trip, you're planning and you're practicing, and then you you know you get shut out or something. And they're like, oh no, but this person yesterday never cast before we got him on a beauty and you're like wait no so i mean i always tell people don't tell guides or lodge owners just don't tell me what happened last week i don't want to hear oh no 80 year old lady never cast before 28 inch brown on a hopper that's right (laughs) uh i did want to dig into a little bit on the places a little more but before we get there i'm I'm just curious about your background because i know i mean not only this fly fishing book but you're a pretty uh, noted author writing for like men's fashion and stuff like Mm -hmm. that talk about talk about your writing and i'm curious you know when did you know because i've had a number of writers and authors and editors um when did you know this was going to be your thing writing well you know i grew up um I grew up in a household of kind of creative people and where the arts and writing were encouraged very seriously. And so it didn't seem strange to me. I think for m- most people, it probably is not a normal thing to do. If you tell your parents you're going to write, they're like, um, uh, it's a phase or something in our, in our family. That's, it's not really a phase. So I, I, you know, I studied art, um, and literature in college in Maine. And I, I wrote about art for many years. I was an art critic. And that was, um, I liked that a lot. And it was a pretty serious education in the sense that I wrote for um, really hardcore print editors who, you know, were, took, took what I wrote seriously, but made serious changes and really made me think about what I wrote. And I guess I'd say I'd become a better writer. And that was important and, and really good. And then at a certain point, I thought, well, I don't really just, I don't want to write just about art. I want to write about other things I care about, you know, travel and 
men's style and in men's style, like particularly like tailoring and skills and people who've done things the same way for a long period of time. So less fashion and more kind of people who, you know, I think the tailoring space and um, to try to make that transition um, and fly fishing, of course, it was, was hard because a lot of, a lot of publications at that time wouldn't let you just write about what you wanted if you didn't have examples of that type of work, even though I'd written major art stories and cover stories and interviews. And so I, I had to, I kind of started over again in a way. And I, I had to write for very little money or no money about all these other things I cared about for websites or magazines, just to have a kind of a portfolio of, of examples of travel writing and things. And then then that kind of worked out and I got some more opportunities to write about all, all types of things. And that was really a kind of a life-changing thing for me because then I could write about what I loved, which is what I wanted to do anyway. And so then, then it, but it's always an issue when you write about something that people know a lot about, right? And so it's hard to write about fishing because there are so many people who know so much more about it than I do. But I, I think for me, what worked is if you can communicate your passion for it or your love of it, and try to bring some sort of personal perspective to it, then it then it works out better. And I just think that's true for most writing. If you you can feel a connection with someone, if they obviously love to eat, you know, they love food or they love um, to travel or whatever it is, they, you don't, they don't need to be the definitive authority on Bordeaux or whatever, you know, or beer for that matter. And um, and in fact, I think this: if you communicate love and obsession, people will will respond to you. And um, so that, that, you know, that's what I've been doing for a long time. But each step of the way, I try to kind of add something else or maybe make it more personal. I think when I wrote when I was younger, it was hard to incorporate things that mattered to me, not, not, not things that mattered to me, how it affected me in a really personal way or talk about myself. And, and I try to do that more and it can be hard. But that's I think this The Optimist is a, kind of my most personal book. And, um, and that was a, a challenge and I think a re- rewarding one. There you go. So, so basically, this book is a little more uh, passion, a little more connection. Yeah, and you're putting yourself in there because so if you're traveling, so all you know, this is is in many ways a travel book. You know, you're you're moving through, um, where, let's just say Argentina, and you're ta- and you're talking about, or I'm talking about, like what I love there and the experiences I've had and who I'm fishing with and the mistakes I've made. I mean, the, the book is a lot about my struggles and, you know, lo- you know, losing the big one or whatever. And, and, um, and, and, and also admitting you love something and you care about it and trying to articulate that I think is a, is, is a good exercise. No, that's awesome. I was just thinking, like I said, we've had a few writers on and um, David Van Wee, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. And we were asking, you know, it was kind of on a similar track. We were talking about writing and he was saying how, you know, it, it's it's more than, you know, there's a story behind the story, right? He was talking about some of the great writers that are out there. And he highlighted some of these writers that covered, you know, some of the greatest writers in the world, right? Aldo Leopold and, mm. um, you know, and some of our greats. And, and he talked about how there were stories within a story, right? There's like a back set a backdrop on some of these things. And, and, um, you know, and a lot of them were personal, like you said, mm-hmm. but you didn't, nobody came out and said it, but there was some stronger thing. Like, um, I'm trying to think of which writer it was, but there was one where they were talking about the effects of world war two yeah. you know, on them, but they never spoke about world war two right. in, in, in that piece. But you know, that's what the whole thing was about. And, mm. and, uh, for him, you know, this book that he wrote was about, um, you know, his journey, right? His struggles and stuff like that. I mean, when you wrote this optimist, I mean, for you, is that kind of on the same lines? I mean, was there well, a backstory to this? I'm not, uh, nothing as dramatic as a World War II veteran. <laughs> I haven't, uh, I haven't, haven't been in the front lines, but I think, I think to me, what you, you, when you are writing something, you have to at least come to terms with the fact that you're putting it out in the world, right? And so that takes a certain amount of, I think, confidence or belief that what you're saying can connect with someone else. And that's a strange thing. And if you st- start to analyze that a lot, um, it can it can paralyze you a little bit or it, you have to or ignore it if you don't feel like, wh- why should I be telling this story? And I think it was an interesting time to write this book. A lot of it was written, you know, last year in isolation, um, you know, in quarantine. And uh, that was useful in a way for me because I could think about what mattered to me in the sense of 
of like, what I was missing or what I wanted to do or what I loved. And I think uh, being in quarantine was a chance, you know, a difficult time for everybody, but it was also a chance to think about the things that matter to us. So that provided some, I don't know, backdrop for what I was doing. And then as I wrote particularly about Wisconsin and Dave and Carter, my mentors, I think it was an useful to, I don't want to say cathartic, but it was meaningful to me to kind of examine what mattered to me in my relationship with them. And then I guess by extension, sort of my relationship, maybe this is what you're getting at with my kind of grandparents and my family and what it meant to kind of come to the same place every summer, this house, this cabin in the woods on a lake. And I think, you know, there's no way you can really write without continuing to find more out more about yourself whether you like that or not you know and i think if i can just finish this thought that you you kind of open the more you write at least for me you you can't be afraid of where you end up i think when i was younger probably i was a little more in control of that and i didn't want to go into certain places i didn't want to reveal too much about myself i think as i get older and i trust that process more i don't necessarily mind if something's revealing or if it's vulnerable or if I look like a fool or if something like that, if it's an honest kind of progression. And I think that that, I hope that that's something that comes across in the book. That's yeah, that's amazing that I think that's the power, right? Yeah. Because the more that personal piece comes out, the more you probably connect with your reader or you're not picking up the book. I, I think that's true, but it's it's hard because you because you're staring at it for a long period of time, right? And it's you know you're staring at the manuscript, or you see it, and or you, and you know it's going to live on, and that um, you know you just you can think about it a lot, or you can just try to start the next book project <laughs> afterward. <laughs> and now let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. In today's world of mass-produced products, Stonefly Nets has reclaimed the tradition of handcrafted care with their custom wood landing nets. Stonefly starts the design process by selecting wood for the handle based on a number of key factors, including grain pattern and depth, but they don't stop there. This piece of art is accentuated by strips of hardwood that complement and accentuate the handcrafted handle. To be honest, I have never been a huge net guy, mainly because I didn't feel like my uh, old collapsible net was easiest to use and was not easy on the eye, if you know what I mean. The Stonefly uh, net not only looks beautiful, but has high quality netting that is easy on the fish and will last for years to come. Stonefly's goal is to create a unique custom classic wood net that's second to none and can be customized for a little extra touch. For Ethan, the founder of Stonefly Nets, fly fishing has always had a traditional feel going back to fishing the three-weight bamboo rod with his great-grandmother. When Ethan designs a custom net, it's his hope that others will create amazing lasting memories for years to come. Please head over to wetflyswing.com stonefly to get your custom net now. That's wetflyswing.com stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y to get started right now. Okay, let's get back to the show. So what was the, you know, I mean, and I just think of this too, because I've struggled with that in this podcast. You know, this podcast is always about my guest, right? I mean, I've had, you know, John Girock on was a huge episode Mm. we had, and he talked about, you know, we talked about the, you know, basically the podcast and him, you know, it's for the podcast. It's all about my guests, right? I I bring Mm -hmm. on good guests to tell good stories. But it's, you know, it's a powerful thing. And, you know, I struggle with the personal thing, though, because there's some times where I've brought up some personal things, you know, and I struggle with that. But for you, is that that now you when you do that, you don't uh, worry about that too much? Are you still it sounds well, like you worry about that, but you just do it? You know, I, I think you, you know, it's interesting is, uh, as you get older, um, which I hear myself starting more and more of what I say <laughs> these days, like, well, as you get older, as if that either makes me seem fake wise, or maybe it makes me seem wise. I think as you get older, you, you come to, ter- you realize that something that you've done that might be vulnerable is maybe more universal than, than you initially think. And so people can feel a connection if you say, oh, well, before I started this podcast, I was nervous about doing it. I didn't want people to think certain things about me or something. And then, but at first you would never admit it. Once you've had it and it's successful, then it's maybe easier to say. But I think that admitting that is a, if that is even the case, you know, if people would understand that feeling, even if they're not, maybe they're thinking about starting a business or they want to become a guide or they didn't want to tell their family they were going to do that or something like that. And I think when we allow ourselves to be a little more human, I think people will often connect with that because they understand that themselves. And I, and I think, 
it's hard to set out to do that. At least in my in my experience, I can't just say, okay, I'm going to be very emotionally honest. I'm going to be real starting now. It's just that happens because you trust yourself, and that ha- and there's no doubt to me that as you, know, you record this podcast in years from now, it will have evolved too. And you will interject more about yourself and that will feel natural. It won't, and you probably won't even locate exactly when it happens. It just happens over time. And that, and that to me, and that's happened with my writing. And I think it happens with all sorts of creative people or people who do something in public that they, they move into a more, um, a a softer space in a way. And I, I like that. And I think that that, um, I think we're always going to connect to people who are, you know, who we feel an emotional connection to. And and that's often because of a certain type of sh- kind of shared humanity or, or, or vulnerability. Is there from, from the book, is there, you know, a personal story or something you want to share that was pretty powerful that, you know, you shared? So mostly it, it, the most personal part is my relationship with, with Dave and Carter. And, and I think that I, um, I think when I started fishing with them, I felt I, I was younger in a way that is, it's not that it embarrasses me, but I just, I didn't see what I had. I mean, I could have been fishing with these guys from when I was a teenager, but I didn't, I wouldn't call them. I wouldn't see them. I mean, I was such a fool to, <laughs> to not be able to fish with like two basically legendary anglers. Cause I was, I don't want to be with a 65 year old. I'm 15 or whatever. Like, like that's exactly what you want. I would want to do now. So I, I kind of track that foolishness. And then when I started fishing with them, I didn't, I'm embarrassed to say, realize how bad I was compared to them. I knew I couldn't do certain things, but I didn't, when, when, when Dave said, oh, well, you've gotten better. And I was, of course, proud that he said that to me. But then I thought, oh, I didn't realize I had. And then I started to think of how, you know, what I, I cast I couldn't do. You know, if someone, if you're in a canoe, which is how we fish, that you're fishing out of canoe. So the guy in the front's casting to the bank. That's the type of fishing we were doing. The guy in the back keeps it there. And, and, you, if if you're a young and not thinking too much about it, you just think the canoe is randomly where it is. But I realized I had to keep the canoe kind of close to the bank because that's sort of as far as I could cast. And you know, it's hard to cast an eight weight sitting down, but later they would keep the canoe much further from the bank, right? And then I think over time, I, 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 I realized that all the things they taught me and they didn't teach in a really demonstrative way. They didn't say, you know, shorten your back cast. I just, I watched what they did. They, they would give some very subtle suggestions. And over time, I realized that that was an education. And over time, I realized we had a connection. And the types of conversations we had were different. Now I was going on on trips during the rest of the year, and I would come back and tell them I'd been to the Bahamas, or I'd been to the Montana, and they wanted to hear details of those trips. And the language that they had spoken before was now a language that I spoke. And so those connections, that those relationships were really, really meaningful to me. And I, you know, in a way, I think that they they were kind of might be described as difficult men in certain situations. And, and they were kind to me and patient with me. And they couldn't really fish with their fi- members of their family very well. That happens sometimes where people are so obsessed that maybe they, their, their son rejects it or something, or that's just too intense. And I think that I was, I wouldn't say I was their surrogate kind of grandchild, but I think the fact that I wasn't in their family kind of made it easier. And, um, and so those, I, I I didn't I'd never really written about that before, and by the end of that first chapter, it kind of talks about the end of those relationships and really the end of their lives, and um, and I think that was a little more emotionally uh, uh, naked than I was expecting to be, but it, it felt honest. So you led in the book with with that. That was your first. Yeah. So it, it tra- so chapter one, Wisconsin. You know, that's where I learned here, where I am now, where I learned to fish and how I started. And then once I kind of knew I was loved, it, I knew I had to go to Montana. So I drove out to Montana. You know, made a fool of myself there. But <laughs> and then I started to go to Montana every year, sometimes twice a year, and um, and and fell in love with Montana and different places there, like. A, ton of people do. And and Montana kind of allowed me to meet people who were, you know, complete obsessive and devote their life to fishing. And I hadn't been around people like that. And that was really um, exciting for me. People who, whatever, were flight attendants for six months, or they could fish six months, or they guided in in uh, Montana, then they guided in Chile, and a month in between, they got and they fished for themselves or something. I, that was really nice to be around that. And I I really loved that time of my life where I, I would just drive and stay in ridiculous motels and 
and um, was still, it was all in front of me at that time. You know, it, it wasn't, uh, I, I was to fish certain places for the first time is really exciting or to, to still be learning or to still come to terms with that is, is something I, I really, uh, I, I liked about being 25 years old, you know? Yeah. Exactly. No, it's a good time. So I want to go back just quickly on the, the men's, yeah. men's fashion. So oh, yeah, you, wrote, sure. you wrote for, so to, to describe just a few of the, um, I'm not sure, articles, magazines, but whatever. Uh, so it's funny. I, I, I started writing for Men's Vogue, which sounds kind of gruesome, but was actually quite good. There, um, uh, there was an editor from The New Yorker named Owen Phillips, and he left he left the New Yorker to go when Men's Vogue started, and um, and there was re- really serious writers there. So like Michael Lewis contributed, and I think Malcolm Gladwell, and like major people from the Condé Nast world were writing for Men's Vogue, and I was just kind of starting out. And I wrote a ton for their website, like a, a ton. Like I would go to auctions or go to um, new new restaurants were opening in New York or wine bars, and I would write very quickly about that, and that kind of forced me to write slightly differently. And then actually the first story I wrote for the magazine, I think was about Silver Creek in Idaho. And of course they were like Hemingway fished here and you learn how they have to kind of frame stories. And then I, I was really interested in tailors and people who make suits traditional in traditional ways and the skills they have. So I think for Bloomberg pursuits, I, I was in Naples, Italy and and this kind of legendary tailor shop, Rubenacci, they, they made me a suit in a week, which was pretty wild, really fast. And I went every day and had a fitting and talked to the tailor and watched the progress of that suit being made. I think, so I write a lot for Rob Report. Um, I, I write a lot of fishing columns for them. And, but I also wrote about, you know, Italian tailoring, which is kind of different in different parts of Italy. It's, you know, more conservative in Milan, a little more kind of professorial or uh, in uh, Florence and a much more expressive in the South and Naples. And I, I'm, I'm very interested. I, I've spent a lot of time in Italy. I'm not interested in Savile Row in England. I, I work with some clothing companies there. I'm you know, doing a clothing collaboration with a company called Drake's. Some clothes for kind of outdoor clothes that I've always wished existed, but haven't that are kind of, kind of like close to wear in the country that's coming out in September. So I'm, I'm very much involved and, and still involved in those things, but I always try to do it in a way that's try to make something that I always wish existed or, or that endures in some way. I don't, uh, and way less about, you know, runway or fashion or trends. Yeah. I love that you hit on outdoor clothing. I had a question I was going to pick your brain about. So I'm curious. So outdoor, I mean, this is really interesting because we've had a few, you know, some clothing companies and things like that, but yeah, I'm just curious. What on your outdoor clothing? What what's the line? I mean, I always well, think you know we kind of joke about the the tweed hat. You know what I mean? The the, the yeah yeah. I mean, I'm a traditional guy, but I don't dress like I'm an English squire or something when I'm on the stream. But I like I'm definitely on the kind of wax cotton. Like, do, could your grandfather have worn it? Oh yeah, I'm, wool, I'm not, I'm not, wool is amazing, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not very tech. I'm not very technical. If I do need something that's kind of in mod made in modern um fabrics or something i'll like try to get an old patagonia version of it that looks like you know you found it in a closet for, for you know then it's been there for 20 years that's sort of where i am but um I, which is not to say i don't love modern i mean i think it's really easy for all of us who fish a lot to say like oh well the 50 if only we were back in you know 50 years ago and it's true in a lot of ways but there's not a day that i fish where i'm not thankful for modern technology when it comes to rods reels waders boots lines i mean we're so lucky for all those things that whenever i'm reading an old old book about fishing and when they talk about like getting ready to go out there i'm like oh my god we take so much for granted yeah yeah we do no I- well, I, I just, I guess the one question I have for you here is on, so you talked about the Bahamas and bone fishing. I'm curious, yeah. you know, so pants, uh, shorts, pants. <laughs> so tell me this, you're the mids fashion expert. Are are the zip off those pants, are those out of style or are those, are those good? I don't know if those were ever in style. Here, my, my general rule is, zips are not i'm not really a big fan of zippers <laughs> i i i always go to the bahamas and i'm and i wear i wear shorts the first day and i get sunburned calves the first day i just that's always that happens so i what i got were a pair of of they're kind of stretchy chinos that i had ta- you know shortened so they're so they don't have to be rolled up so they're high above my ankle and they dry really fast but i they're normal enough looking that i don't look like i'm wearing parachutes on my pant my legs and so i wear those 
where I fish, actually, you can wear bare feet, um, wade barefoot, which I love. I found some weird um, scuba diving boots that I like, and I just I try to keep it pretty pretty simple um, on the. Uh, I, I, there, guys get all fishing clothes for some reason like announce themselves as capital F fishing, capital C clothes. Like let's just just make it look normal. It doesn't need all these extra, you know, doodads. And I, I'm and I'll never understand all that. And I always am looking for the simplest version of a thing, which I completely love to do. I mean, I am all over vintage Orvis, vintage Patagonia, vintage North Face searches for old duffel bags and old um, you know, the just the a, a really easy fitting everything. I mean, I don't understand. I wish these companies would just make Sorry, now you've got me on it. No, know, keep going. Every year, new wading boots. It's just like, that's fine. Keep your new wading boot every year, but just keep one and call it the classic or something. And that just looks like relatively normal and you can still have moon boots and you can still have all these crazy things, but just keep one simple pair. And I would be, wouldn't be surprised if it sells very well because there's plenty of people who just want it to be normal. You know? I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's like the sunglasses thing. I'm on, right now on a new, my old sunglasses are gone. I'm trying to find a new pair and I've put on a couple and so far they're giving me like, uh, you know, red marks <laughs> on my face, right? It's like, like, oh my gosh. This well, is, this is I should tough. tell you, I actually, so I've been in a furious with sunglasses, uh, fishing sunglasses forever. So I actually did a project with this English company called Kirk and we made <laughs> at a pretty high cost, actually, um, what I consider to be about the perfect pair of glasses. They kind of look like 70s kind of wayfarers, but they are pretty cool retro glasses with beautiful lenses and um and that was a fun thing to do because i've never found a pair that i've liked or i found a pair like i have an old orvis pair that they of course discontinued 20 years ago when i've been searching for them and can't find them anywhere so it was fun to make go back and make this actual pair of glasses and um and we're going to re re-release them because it was they were kind of a, a little smash hit which was fun because i think other people want these simple things nice what's the how do you spell that that company the kirk k-i-r-k kirk originals i'll um oh, maybe perfect. we can uh, link over to yeah. it but I, they sold out because we they were made by hand in this oh gotcha <laughs> factory and and but now we're going to hopefully re-release them and and uh a limited run and then maybe even another run that's a little more earthbound price machine made but it's fun to like you know i'm lucky enough to know some people in these companies and try to like figure out ways to make things that i wish exist or um or recreate certain things that and that's sort of fun and, and I was just curious again, you know, the, this came up, I think maybe one of your bios somewhere along the way, but they said, you know, uh, the, the re a renaissance man. Uh, <laughs> can you describe, can you describe for somebody who like hears that is like, I don't know, what does that actually mean? Do, can you I, I talk about that? And is that you? I don't know that that sounds deadly, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't say that myself. I think it's, you know, if you, it's nice to have interests, it's nice to travel if, and I, you know, I wrote a lot about travel and I, we haven't talked about that as much, but I, I, I was a contributing editor at Condé Nast Traveler magazine, so it was great to be able to um, to write about different places in the world that I love. And I think, you know, I love art. I, I love the opera. I, I, I like, you know, cultural. I love to the theater. And I especially thinking about that now because we haven't been able to attend any of those things in years. And I think... I think when people use that phrase, it's partly because I probably seem like an old man or something because I just, you know, I like tailored clothing. I think anyone who listens to this would probably consider me overdressed most of the time. I mean, if I'm in New York, I, I wear a sport coat every day, but I, you know, I try to be relaxed about it, try to, try to look natural. And, um, and I, you know, I like, I don't know, Paris and Florence, Italy and Kyoto, Japan. But I, and I think, and I love to, you know, read and obviously I love literature, but I, you know, that <laughs> I, I think all of these things should bring you joy. You know, it's not, I don't think to like something to prove that you like it is a good thing. And I think that that's actually really not great. <laughs> you know, you don't want to just claim, oh yes, I've got this watch or this car, or I attended this thing, like, that's just exhausting. I think these things are there to bring us joy or to tell us something about what it means to be alive. And there's so many things that are, can be joyful. And I, I think uh, that that, I mean, to me, that's eating like a three hour lunch and that I like to do that. And I would have liked to do it with Jim Harrison when he was still alive, but alas, that never happened. <laughs> yeah. That's a, no, I, I agree. I think that the travel, I mean, you know, I just look again for me, you know, I mean, there's a lot of places that I would like to go and I probably won't be able to go, but I mean, it sounds like maybe your travel writing when you got into that, who was that, was that specifically, or was that for that general audience as well? Yeah. I mean, I think I've always tried to, um, 
you know, it's funny when you write a book, you can, you have a fair amount of control over what you're doing. If you're writing for a magazine, you, you've got to serve their audience, right? So you're constantly balancing what you think is interesting with what they, people are expecting there. So you can't just say here, we're going to the most remote bone fishing lodge. That's really, you got to pack in and it's really rustic. Like that, that's not what a fancy audience and who reads a travel magazine necessarily wants. So I was always trying to figure out like how, like what's an itinerary that people can actually do, whether it's fishing or cultural or, or dining or whatever, how does it, you know, this is okay. Here's this, this is Milan, Italy. Here's a town that's an hour from Milan. This is a fun thing to do for two days and try to imagine how it actually fits together. You know, you're making a, you're, you're trying to help people do something for 48 hours or 72 hours or something and, and bring them something that's new and something that's reassuring and, and combine those things together. So that was a fun thing to do. I mean, the, it got frustrating at a certain point because they wouldn't want to do some of the more obscure stuff I wanted to do, which is one reason I you know started a website and started a newsletter and, and thought, you know, I think there is an ap- appetite for more very specific things and people are always looking for new experiences. So sometimes you just have to do that stuff on your own. Yeah. So, and and you mentioned helping them. So it sounds like when you were writing, you were always thinking, I mean, I, I uh, struggle with that as well. You know, like this conversation is a good one, right? I mean, I always try <laughs> to think like, how do we serve the person listening? Right. And some people are, are going to want those technical tips and some people are going to want the stories, but did you always feel like with the travel that you couldn't just be like, I'm just going to go and just write my story and people can listen well, to what my story was. I mean, it's a really good question because it touches on a lot of what we want. I mean, sometimes things like I would read travel writing and sometimes it's just inspiring to know this place exists. I'm not going to try to recreate what the author did. I just want to know that this is a great island in Greece or whatever it is, or this is a great mountain town, or maybe it's a category of things. There are maybe there are cool mountain towns in a certain part of Japan and it's just something to think about. In other cases, people really need to know exactly what it is. You know, is it close to the train station? Can, do you need to take a car there? Is it, or whatever it is they need physically to understand how things relate to each other. I mean, I think it's a funny thing to, you know, at a certain point, if you're writing, you have to decide, and it's always, it's particularly funny about fishing. You know, people are like, we don't want more people fishing. Okay. So they don't like you to tell them anything. And so those people probably won't write about it and maybe even resent people who do, but you're always going to have media, uh, someone with podcasts, someone with a book, someone in magazines talking about fishing. That's just how it's going to be. And it's how it was before we were alive. And, and if, if you had embraced that, that's the case, then you need to help people. You have to say that it's got to give them something that's exciting, something they can look forward to, something that's manageable and something's probably that's unattainable. So all those things mixed together. I mean, that to me makes a good story, right? You, you, how, and you have to tell people the, you know, walk them through how to arrive at this place. Is it easy? Is it hard? Do you need to, you know, take a, a crazy plane in there and you're like thinking it's not going to land properly or, in, or or that you stay in a place and it loses its power three hours every night and that's just part of it. Or they make the best whatever pancakes you've ever had in the morning or or the guides kind of make fun of you in a nice way or whatever it is and, and uh, don't ever, you know, set too quickly or you're going to lose the brook trout or all that stuff together. I mean, that's traditions and travel and, and why we move through the world, I think. Did you have any, I just think, because this is kind of interesting last night, I don't know why I had this dream, but sometimes I have this dream that pops up. It's like, I'm, I'm essentially in the Middle East and I'm like <laughs> fighting for my life stuck okay. in the middle, you know, right beside, I mean, like, <laughs> that's kind of a crazy thing to even admit, but um, I mean, what, I mean, for you, did you have any of those stories? I mean, in your life, I mean, these travels, were there any like near death experiences? Hmm. Well, I definitely did some things when I was younger that I don't quite understand in retrospect. I think I like I was in India and um, <laughs> I was, you know, 21 or 22 and I was trying to prove that I could do it in like the cheapest way possible, which is not really necessary because you can spend $20 and stay in a beautiful hotel in some small town. But we were, the girl I was with at the time was spending, you know, $5 just to kind of prove that we were. I don't know, virtuous or something. And and like we would take these buses up in the northern part of India that 
uh, in mountains where you, I mean, it's just the exact sort of thing that you would like see at the bottom of the Herald Tribune saying, you know, bus crashes, two American tourists killed. And I just did not want to be one of the people who was like the two American tourists, you know, rolled down. And, and you just, you look at it later and you're like, what was the point of doing that? Or why did I, you know, stay in a, you know, in a beautiful historic germ. I was in, you know, in Germany right around that time too. And I was in this beautiful city. Like, why did I stay like in the back above a Mexican restaurant? Um, just to prove that I was, you know, like, I don't know, not, not fancy or something, but India definitely took a lot out of me when I was 22 and I'm dying to go back. There you go. Yeah. The buses that we've had a few of those stories, Jeff Courier is one I remember from a podcast way at the start. Yeah, he almost died, right? Same thing. I think he was in Africa going on a fly fishing trip. Um, and he mentioned, yeah, same thing. Some guy jumped up with a knife and tried to pull him out of the boat or out of the bus. Whoa. The way. So, yeah, the buses, that's something that seems like that's maybe one. And as I mentioned, the Ecuador, <laughs> we're trying to plan a trip to Ecuador into the jungle. Oh. And, uh, and we got a couple of little kids. So we're like, okay, how do we do this safely? Is it possible? <laughs> and I, I think it is. But, um, Cool. Well, David, I think, um, you know, we've been kind of plugging along here. This has been a lot of fun for me. I'm curious, maybe you can just take us out. We mentioned at the start the places. Um, just can you walk us through in the book a few of the places that you, I mean, I know we've talked about some of them. Anything else you want to hit on that really, uh, that maybe we should be thinking about? Well, I think, so I live in, I live in Manhattan and I, and I think fishing in Jamaica Bay, which is right next to JFK in Queens, you can see the boats from the plains is really a fun thing to do. So when the stripers come through and I think, you know, I don't, I love to travel, but I think, I mean, fishing to me is hugely about your home water, what's near you and loving that and embracing that. And I think it's important to do that. And I don't want to come across as if, if you're not going to Argentina, what's the point? It's like, there's a million points to do it. And that didn't happen for me for many years. And I think fishing near where you live is a great thing. And you have a really personal connection to it and you get to know the water and the seasons. And, and that is wonderful. And that's kind of how I end the book about my home water, which is in the Catskills. But having said that, I think going to Jamaica Bay is awesome. It's so much fun. And so when the stripers come through, I have a friend who has a boat out there, uh, Joel, and we I take the ferry, which is really fun. He picks me up and we go to his marina and take his boat out. And you are right at the end. I think it's runway four. And these huge, you know, Airbus A380s, the biggest planes there are, taking off to fly to South Africa or Seoul, Korea, or whatever, and at intervals of you know every two minutes or so, and you're below in these wonderful marshes, absolutely gorgeous sort of water, um, chasing after seagulls trying to catch stripers. It's an incredible combination of things, and and if you go on like a weekend, there are a ton of boats in the bay, which is really fun actually. It's sort of chaotic and different types of people fishing different ways and trying to catch. A fluke off the bottom, all sorts of crazy people doing things. And it's just a reminder of how much people love the water, all different people from different backgrounds and different cultures and different types of boats. I mean, the craziest boats and people fishing in pretty big water and in kayaks and other people doing, you know, the stuff that shouldn't be out there. And then, you know, some people in pretty fancy boats and there are a couple of hotshot fly guides and and you don't really want to look at their instagram later that day because sometimes you're like oh it was a tough day we did as well as we could and then <laughs> joel sends me a picture and the guys from that very day is holding up a huge striper and you're like yeah. i don't know if i needed to see that no no i know yeah the boat it, the boats get you to some good water for sure <laughs> right so i think nice. it's good and I, I i do think that um you know that there's nothing like if whatever your ideal is, Montana or Idaho or, or Oregon, if you're not there, it doesn't mean the fishing isn't meaningful. And, and, and for, so that's why we know when I was in where I am in Wisconsin, I mean, it was smallmouth bass fishing, which I absolutely love and I think is a great sport. And I think if you have a chance to do it, people will really like it. Casting poppers to the bank and, and then a you know, huge fish comes off and takes it and they fight wonderfully. It's just a great, great sport. And I think it's good to have, even if the fish are smaller or it's a different, if it's redfish or something that isn't like a brown trout sipping a, you know, a dun at, at, at dusk, there's, there's still great things to do. And I think the sport is like incorporating, you know, the water near you into your life and having it be part of that. I think that's really, really a great thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that you brought it back to the home water. That's always a cool, mm. you know, I think of all the places we could travel. Like I said, we're not going to be able to do it all. And, uh, you know, but at least, you know, you have your home water. And I mean, every, I, I can't imagine a place, right? Even, I think some of the places with our listeners, I, you know, we have some good statistics. We can see where people are listening. And, you know, like the, um, 
Indiana, right? Some of those places mm-hmm. in the mid, it's like you don't see as many listeners there, and that's because right the fly fishing. But there's still some fishing there. There's pan fish, and yeah. So no matter where you go, you always have some good. You know, you could always fly fish, right? Totally. I, I mean, <laughs> I think that I think there'll be more of that, and I think even in the last year, as people were kind of staying close to home, they were they were chucking in some of their local local waters, which is you know that's a that's understanding the world in a very specific way. And I, I think that's a really great, great thing to do. You know, anytime we travel, we're, we're kind of at the mercy of, <laughs> oh, a front came through or, oh, the rain for five days or, oh, whatever. And, and uh, I mean, there's no place I've been where the fishing wasn't apparently better five days before I got there. <laughs> you know, like we haven't seen this before. Like, uh-oh. <laughs> exactly. What about, uh, what, give us, before we get out of here, uh, David, give us a, you know, style, style matter to give us something that, like, you don't have to give us maybe if you don't have a tip, but is there like a, like a lot of us are, I think, you know, fishermen, we're not, you know, kind of, we're just fishermen. What what would you say if somebody get, wants to get spruced up and kind of wants to be a little better maybe for, well, you know, the you, ladies or his lady, yeah. what would you tell them? <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Um, didn't know we were going to end up here, but you know, I think it's nice <laughs> to, to dress well or to make an effort. And I think people sometimes don't want to do that because, so a ton of people, so I wrote a book called Men in Style. I've written about style a lot. And a lot of people are young guys asking me questions. How do, you know, where do I get a sport coat? What do I wear to a wedding? And they want to do the right thing. And I think if I can just speak about men for a second, sometimes men don't want to do something because they don't think they're going to know enough about it. So if they don't know everything about wine or they don't know everything about tailoring or if they don't know everything about fishing, they're, they're reluctant to do it because they think they're going to be exposed somehow. And there's nothing wrong with trying to do the, you know, it's trying to make the right effort. That's how it starts. It's how you learn about clothes. It's how you learn about wine. It's how you learn about fishing or literature or anything else is you start by trying to do the right thing. And then you're going to evolve from that. So I think admitting that there's nothing dandyish about trying to to wear a sport coat, you're just showing some respect to yourself. Many people in your life are going to like it, probably your girlfriend or wife. And and it's nice to try to make that effort and then you'll learn more about it and don't be don't let the fact that you don't know stand in your way. And a good store or a good you know, people should try to help you look 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 well and, and dress well and in a way that endures, not just to get you to buy something and then get you to buy something else. And and something should last for a long time. And I think it's worth investing in something that you like and you have it for 10 years. And that that's a that's a good thing. And that's just part of of growing up. And I think somehow we moved away from pretty basic ideas that you could you dressed up in the right situation and to show the you know some respect to people around you if you're attending their wedding or if you're 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 going to a big party and it's nice to do that and it's not it doesn't and then you you can forget all about it once you put it on you just you be yourself yeah i love i love you hit the sport code that's a that's a cla- <laughs> that's a classic uh Definitely, we'll have to look look into that a little bit. What's the uh, <laughs> um, so again? Remind me of that book because I think that that might be a good re- resource. So, Men in Style. I mean, my first book was called Men in Style, and it was it was kind of about how men arrived at their kind of. This was I interviewed a bunch of stylish guys, friends of mine who were in the that kind of space, and about kind of how they arrived at their sensibility. When was that? That came out in 2016. Yeah, and so it was. It was about, you know, how did interesting men arrive at their point of view? I mean, clothes were just the kind of vehicle. It was really about sensibility and mistakes and learning and arriving at a kind of a more enlightened space. And it was it was pretty funny. So there's all sorts of photos of them, different guys when they're young and their fathers and and actually somebody's um, fishing gear that that belonged to his grandfather. That's really, you know, it, it had all it has all sorts of things in it. That book's a little harder to track down. Then my last book was called Men and Manners. And that's kind of a lighthearted book trying to just ask people to kind of men in particular to be a little bit better version of themselves in the public sphere as it illustrated and it's sort of lighthearted but you know touched on something that i thought mattered at that time and um you know and people i talked with with rosenbauer about you know how we should be on the river and how we interact with other people when it gets a little bit stick sticky out there and i do think you know that's you know, we've got, if someone is else is a fly, fly angler, you've got so much in common with them. And yet somehow if we're in the same water, then we just like look at them as if they're the absolute enemy, <laughs> you know, when this person that you would totally like to talk to at any other point, but there it, it gets a little bit unpleasant sometimes. But I think you just want to be patient and go somewhere else and, and give and, and not try to start anything that's just, I don't even know what the point of getting into arguments that you, you the person's still going to be standing there afterward. <laughs> 
Exactly. No, I hear you. <laughs> I think that's a struggle for a lot of us. Uh, but okay, cool. Well, that gives us some resources. And yeah. I, I imagine there's tons of magazines. Uh, <laughs> I always think of like for me, like GQ comes to my mind. It just seems like it's always been this name that's out there. But is there, I guess, uh, do, what magazine would you would you point somebody to? Is there a style? Well, I think, you know, those, those magazines kind of stopped writing about tailoring and stuff. I mean, you can kind of look at the rake. My friend Matt Hranick has a magazine called William Brown, uh, William Brown, which is pretty good. You know, and I've got a newsletter, The Contender, and I do kind of Q and A's once a month. And a lot of the questions are about these types of things. And that was, that was pretty funny. Once I started to do that, how many people came out of the woodwork asking these types of questions. And they also ask questions about fishing. And so if you, if you subscribe, you can kind of participate once a month and you can see what other people's questions are and you can chime in if you've got ideas about fishing or dressing up or whatever it is. Cool. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to hit you up on that. Look for my email. (laughs) Sounds good, Dave. I'm going to keep it touch because I need some help and, uh, We'll get into it. So, hey, uh, be, and before we get out, just one more. Um, as far as you know, the next year or, or yeah. beyond. I mean, is there a new book? Anything coming? You want to give a heads up to anything? Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's discussion of another fishing book, and so that is kind of being hashed out right now. And um, we'll see how that goes if everything aligns with. And it would be also travel and even more kind of far flung places. So I'm I'm pretty excited about that. But um, that that's still. You know, a lot of a book, a lot of people have to sign off to make that happen. But that should be should actually be out. Um, the the announcement of that should hopefully be out in the next few weeks. There you go. Yeah, that makes sense. I love the travel. I love that you're hitting on the travel more. And I think that that's just going to obviously we're going through COVID. So it's been a crazy yeah. time. But once we come out of this, I think travel is just going to blow up. You know, I think absolutely it's get even bigger, especially like you said, the fly fishing. I mean, who doesn't want to go to the Bahamas or you know South <laughs> yeah. America? I mean, it's it's all good. So yeah. All right, David. Well, thanks for your time today. I'll send everybody out to um, uh, to your website, I guess, thecontender.co. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun for me. I know we uh, we just touched on some fishing, but I think it's always my favorite episodes are always the ones where they're a little random and kind of all. Totally. I think for you, I mean, somebody listening, there's people that already probably have read your book and things like that. But I mean, getting a perspective on your history is really interesting. So yeah, yeah, thanks for the time today. Thanks so much, Dave. Really appreciate it. Great talking to you. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all links, everything else we covered uh, today, head over to wetflyswing.com slash 254. And that'll get you directly to the blog post. All the links will be there. Everything will be there. And I'd love to hear if that is a good resource for you, if it's worth the effort. It's definitely something I'm trying to uh, keep keep doing. Um, but I haven't heard back if a lot of people are utilizing it as much. So let me know. Let me know on that. If you found this podcast helpful, uh, please head over and uh, leave a five-star review on whatever app you are listening to right now. You can also head over to wetflyswing.com slash love, L-O-V-E. And that's a quick way to show you which, whatever app you're using, it'll let you click through and show you how to leave a review really quick. A quick heads up, uh, next week, uh, Jeff Liske is here and he shares uh, some serious goodness with uh, the history around fly fishing and the Midwest. Uh, I want to just give you a heads up on that. Please subscribe if you want to get updated when that episode goes live. Thanks again for all the support today. Looking forward to catching up with you soon. Hope to maybe see you on the river or maybe online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.